Can we have simple, undenominational Christianity? Join Neil Pollard as he looks into God's Word to understand what denominational means in light of the unity that must exist for the Lord's Church. David B. Barrett passed away in Richmond, Virginia about a decade ago. He began his career in aircraft design flight research on such planes as the de Havilland Comet, which was the world's first commercial jet, and the supersonic Concorde. When the Royal Air Force reassigned him to missile and bomb design, he left to, uh, to train for a priesthood in the Church of England. He was a missionary and a scholar, earning his Ph.D. from Columbia. Perhaps his greatest work was as a demographer, the study of statistics. In 1982, he published a book entitled World Christian Encyclopedia. This resource is highly respected and trusted by people across the religious spectrum. A second edition came out in 2001. It took a decade to compile the update. And perhaps the most startling statistic in that book is that within Christendom, Barrett found 33,820 denominations. Barrett defined a denomination as an organized Christian church or tradition or group or community of believers within a specific country whose component core and members are called by the same denominational name in different areas of that country. Barrett then tells us that there are 27 major Protestant sects or denominations worldwide, 25 Orthodox denominations, and 22 Roman Catholic denominations. So I suppose that the good news is that those who believe in Christ aren't nearly as divided as that 33,820 number suggests. It would include the Korean Baptist and South African Baptist, for example, as two denominations. However, the bad news is that 77, the number of major denominations in our world, is 77 too many. Not only that, but of the nearly 2 billion people calling themselves Christians, the overwhelming majority of them belong to a denomination. Perhaps you might ask, well, what's wrong with belonging to a denomination? Part of the confusion lies in what people today think when they think denomination. The American Heritage Dictionary says a denomination is a large group of religious congregations united under a common faith and name and organized under a single administrative and legal hierarchy. HarperCollins says a group having a distinctive interpretation of a religious faith and usually its own organization is a denomination. Other lesser-known resources include such ideas as a group of people with the same religious beliefs or a group of religious congregations having its own organization and a distinctive faith. So we might paraphrase our question. What is wrong with a group having a common faith and name, an organization, and a distinctive interpretation. I am not suggesting that even a single person in a single denomination is anything less than sincere, dedicated, 
and deliberately an error on such things. But the answer depends on what that faith, name, organization, or interpretation is. The word denomination also suggests a division or subdivision. Each group has its own faith, its own name, its own organization and interpretation. Can they all be right, even with a different faith or a different interpretation and so forth? Most people today have a hard time thinking of the church in anything but denominational terms. They don't think of Paul and Peter and James and John and other first century Christians as being in a denomination. But when they think of today, they think of different groups. Names that we could uh, identify just by way of example. Catholics, Baptists, Methodists, Lutherans, Church of God, so forth. But surely if the apostles and others had the same faith, wore the same name, followed the same organization and interpretation, we can do that today. May I suggest that the New Testament church is undenominational in its nature, and this is by God's design and desire. We know this because we listen to Jesus' dying request in the Garden of Gethsemane as He prayed to the Father. He says in, in John chapter 17 at verse 20, I do not pray for these, that is the apostles, if we look starting in verse 6, for these alone, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word, that they all may be one as You, Father, are in Me and I in You that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you loved me. Jesus wants us to be united, but united in Him. If we are united in Him, we will not be denominational, divided. Please consider with me today the Bible's plea for undenominational Christianity. How does the Bible call to us to not be divided but united in Christ? Number one, the Bible speaks of Christ's church in the singular and not the plural. That takes us to Caesarea Philippi where Jesus is asking His disciples who men thought that He was. In Matthew 16, Jesus talks to His apostles about His church. We read in Matthew 16 beginning at verse 13 that when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples saying, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the grave, shall not prevail against it. He is looking ahead to the establishment of His church. And we're going to read about that happening in Acts chapter 2. We learn so many important truths about the church in this verse. But consider how He speaks of its singular nature. He was only going to build one church. Notice in verse 18, Christ says, My church. 
If Jesus intended to build more than one with different faith, with different organization, with a different name, he would have said, my churches. Incidentally, this is a significant reason why the church that I preach for goes by the name Church of Christ. What does Christ say here? He says, I will build my church. So what would we call it or should we call it? The church of or belonging to Christ. Other passages reinforce the idea that Jesus has but one church. In discussing the church, New Testament writers often use the phrase one body. In fact, you'll find it ten times in nine different New Testament verses. And they are talking about the church in all of those verses. And Paul is the writer in each and every occasion. And while we need to recognize that a writer may have one meaning for a word in one place and another meaning for that word in another place, that is not the case with this phrase. In Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 4 says, For even as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Romans 12 verse 4 and 5. So we have many members but these make up one body in Christ. These many are the saints in Rome, Romans chapter 1 and verse 7, the brethren of Romans 12 and verse 1, and 13 other passages in Romans. There's the passage in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 17 that says, For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Well, that one bread is Christ, according to verse 16, the verse before. And so there is the same number of breads as there is bodies. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13 and verse 20, Paul says almost the identical thing that he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. The body is one, but has many members. We are all baptized into that one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free. And then twice in Ephesians, Paul uses the phrase, one body. In Ephesians 2.16, in Ephesians 4 and verse 4, while Paul is talking about the one church and using local examples in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians, he's speaking of the church everywhere. Chapter 2.16 says that he reconciles all Jew, Jews and all Gentiles in the one body. In chapter 4 and verse 4, he says there is the same number of bodies as there is Holy Spirits, hopes, lords, faiths, baptisms, and heavenly fathers. One. Just to make it unmistakably clear, Paul identifies what he means by body in Ephesians 1, and 23, where he says, God gave Jesus to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. What I need to reason out of this is this. Did God give Jesus to be the head over all things only to the church at Ephesus? Or was it also Rome and Corinth and Colossae? And then in Colossians 3.15, it tells us that we are all called in one body, which is identified in Colossians 1.24 as the church. You can read throughout the New Testament and find references to congregations in many places composed of many members. But here's what you also find. All of these make up one body. They were all to be teaching the same thing, to be one in Christ as the Son and the Father are one. 
you will not read about churches with different interpretations, different organizations, or different faiths, at least not with God's approval. But then second, with regard to undenominational Christianity, will you observe with me that the Bible reveals the establishment of only one church? While Jesus promised to build His church in Matthew 16, 18, you don't read about the establishment of that church until after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, Paul tells the elders of the church at Ephesus that Jesus' blood was the purchase price of the church. In Acts 20, verse 28, he said, that blood was shed at His death on the cross. No, the church comes into existence after Jesus ascends to heaven on the first Pentecost following His resurrection. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches about Christ, who He is, what He requires, and what it takes to follow Him. And then in that climactic verse in Acts 2, 38, Peter said to them who would ask, what shall we do? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41 tells us that those who gladly received the preached word were baptized. Now before you reach the end of Acts 2, Luke is already making reference to those who followed Peter's message, who repent and are baptized and continue in apostolic preaching, verse 42... As the church, verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Before you finish reading the book of Acts, which is the New Testament's history book about the church, you will read about the church 16 more times. You will read about churches, plural, three times in Acts. In Acts 9.31, Acts 15.41, and Acts 16.5. This is not referring to multiple denominations, each with their own distinct teachings. The churches in Acts 15.41 and Acts 16.5 are all established by the same men around the same time. And in Acts 9.31, these are all congregations coming to peace with the same situation that Saul of Tarsus was no longer their enemy. As you read all the New Testament passages that reference the church of our Lord as it existed on earth, they were being taught the same thing. When it came to worship, Ephesus and Colossae are being told the same things about singing. Corinth and Ephesus were taught the same thing about women's role in the church. Galatia, Ephesus, All the churches in the different regions that Peter addresses in 1 Peter and Corinth are all taught the same thing about baptism. In fact, how strange would it be to read in God's Word that one church was taught one way to be saved and another church is taught another way to be saved and God be pleased with it all? While Paul is talking about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 14.33, it would apply to every subject that God is not the author of confusion but of peace as in all the churches of the saints, 1 Corinthians 14.33. Friend, God would not trick us. And He certainly does not want us confused about His will and expectations. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear that God our Savior desires all men to be saved and all all to come to the knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. Interestingly enough, it's the knowledge of the truth and not the knowledge of the truths. Jesus had called Himself the truth, not a truth or one of many truths in John 14, 6. 
Instead, we can see how logical and sensical it is for God to have one body of truth that included one church. And that's exactly what we see in the New Testament. Paul and Peter and James and John and the other Christians in the New Testament were members of the same church. Friends, we have to go centuries beyond the first century to find more than one church springing up. You certainly don't read about it happening in the times of the New Testament. And that's why undenominational Christianity is so vital. But then third, with regard to our subject today of undenominational Christianity, we observe that the Bible condemns religious division among the followers of Jesus. While there was only one church in the New Testament, that does not mean that they did not struggle with problems of division. In fact, it is the very reason that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, he says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. Do you see, Paul is very concerned about divisions and contentions, and he pleads for sameness. Early in this letter, Paul warns these Christians about their following any man other than Christ. And Paul wrote to correct the mentality of following men. And he urges everyone to be on the same page on religious matters. You know, the Greeks did have a word closely related to our English word denomination. It was the word heresis, found nine times in the New Testament. It means strictly a choice or option, therefore a sect, a faction. And by implication, it means discord or contention. The um, uh, lexicon BDAG says that the word was used in reference to political preference or group loyalty. And so this idea of denomination was a group that holds tenets or beliefs distinctive to it a party, a school, or a faction. That which distinguishes a group's thinking, opinion, or dogma. While enemies wrongly referred to the church as a sect in Acts 24, verse 5, verse 14, and Acts 18 and verse 22, when New Testament writers wrote of such groups, they are described as sinful or harmful. You see, the Pharisees were a sect Acts 15 and verse 5 and Acts 26 and verse 5. And so were the Sadducees, Acts 5 and verse 17. Paul condemns such behavior in 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, 19, and he calls it a work of the flesh in Galatians 5 and verse 20. You know, Peter warns of false teachers introducing destructive heresies, 2 Peter 2 and verse 1. So when God refers to a group and uses the word heresis, he is condemning its existence. If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one, and if the church of the New Testament managed not to denominate or divide itself, 
then shouldn't we be able to do that today? That may mean that men have to relinquish their power and authority and submit to Christ. It may also mean that long-held traditions, doctrines, and philosophies have to be eliminated in favor of what Scripture says. It means that groups must align their worship, their teaching about salvation, and every other teaching that conflicts with God's revealed truth. But friends, it can be done. In fact, to please God, it must be done. You know, Christ died for unity, and we should live for unity. It is never, ever a matter of who is right. It is not my religion versus your religion. It is not what I think versus what you or someone else thinks. It is what does the Bible say and what does God want. We know from the verses that we looked at today that God wants His followers united. The only right way to do that is to follow Scripture, adding nothing to it and subtracting nothing from it. You know, the New Testament forewarned that this division was coming. Paul told the Ephesian elders that he knew it was going to happen. He says that after my departure, there shall be grievous wolves who will come in and will draw away disciples after themselves, not sparing the flock. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 30. He told Thessalonica that some would believe a lie and they would not believe the truth, that God would send upon them a strong delusion. In other words, He would allow it to happen because they didn't love the truth. They, they wanted to believe what was false. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 11 and 12. He told Timothy that some were going to depart from the faith. It's, it's very interesting. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, he gives some examples of what it would look like when people departed from the faith. With all those warnings, those forewarnings, we cannot be surprised that it actually happened. What is our purpose? What is our goal? We need to be involved in trying to get people to accept and to be a part of simple New Testament Christianity, that there are no alternatives, that there are no substitutes. It is not a matter of who's right. It's a matter of what's right. The Apostle Paul would say in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, I marvel that you are so soon removed from Him who called you from the grace of Christ into another gospel, which is not another gospel. But there would be some that would trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which I have preached unto you, let him be accursed. That's Galatians 1, 6 through 9. And so it's easy for us to trace through the history book of the church, the book of Acts, and to see the very first time that Jesus is preached in Acts chapter 2. The church at Jerusalem, the church that belongs to our Lord, is established as the result of that as we read in Acts 2, 37 through 47. And they continue there and that church expands and it grows in Acts 3 and Acts 4, even with its problems in Acts 5 and Acts 6, even with persecution in Acts chapter 7 and Acts 8 and Acts 9, that, they, that those that are persecuted are scattered abroad preaching the word. This church is going everywhere preaching the word, Acts 8 and verse 4, and they go to Samaria and they go to Judea. 
And then ultimately in Acts chapter 10, they begin to take the gospel to the, the, to the, the rest of the world, starting with Cornelius and his household in Acts chapter 10. And pretty soon, the one that was persecuting the church became a preacher for that church. And he takes that same gospel out of Palestine and he gets on a ship and goes overland and he begins to take the gospel to the known world. And he takes that church on a first and a second and a third missionary journey, the message of the church of our Lord. And he establishes the church all over the place. The corruption would come later, the division, the departure. And history traces it for us. But the idea that we can go back to the New Testament and do as they did and have what they had to have our teaching, our worship, our organization, our plan for salvation to be what they had in the New Testament. Not only is that possible, not only is it desirable, but it's essential. God would have you and I to do that. And with all the religious division that exists today, it will go away if we will simply stand upon the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is man that has confused that, not God. God loves all of us and He appreciates the devotion and sincerity that we have, but that sincerity alone is not going to save us, even in the name of religion. In the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus stands in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 and He says, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not to prophesied in your name and in your name done many wonderful works and cast out demons? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. We don't want that, especially with devotion in our hearts for him. We don't want to be governed by what we think we ought to do, but what he, the head of the church, wants us to do. I appeal to you, I plead with you, to consider this New Testament concept of undenominational Christianity. We can have that if we will simply go past what man says and what man wants and go to what the man of God, the Son of Man, our Savior, our Lord has called for us to do. Let's do that together.